You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, I'm Veronica Goodman, Director of Social Policy at the Progressive Policy Institute, and this is Radically Pragmatic, a podcast by PPI. And I'm Crystal Swan. I'm Senior Policy Fellow and Mosaic Economic Project Lead at PPI. So we had a great interview um, that we want to share with everyone today. We, we, uh, uh, we talked with Congresswoman uh, Chrissy Houlihan, who is from the 6th District in Pennsylvania, and we had a... And we discussed a whole host of issues. I was joined by Hillary Abel, who is a Mosaic cohort member and she's co-founder of Project Equity. And we covered quite a bit of landscape in that conversation, but it was really an opportunity to introduce her to Mosaic, but also get a chance to talk about some issues that were important to us around um, small business investment opportunities, um, women in the workforce and what are we looking forward to and what we're hoping the Biden administration will accomplish along with <laughs> a partially, you know, working Congress and also just sort of some of the things that we were hoping to to see coming forward. That's great, Crystal. We have a few listeners of the podcast who haven't yet heard about the work that Mosaic is doing. Could you tell us a little more about the project and your cohorts? Sure. Um, the Mosaic Economic Project has been going on for for a little bit more, almost a year now. Uh, and we are really focused on addressing a, an issue, which is we have heard time and time again in terms of congressional uh, staffers and others saying they are, can't find women who are experts in the, in the field of economics and technology in other spaces. And so Mosaic was sort of created to address that problem, to say, look, there are women experts out there. There are women of color out there who are experts in these spaces. We're going to find them. We're going to find out whether or not they're interested in engaging in public policy. If they are, we are going to work with them to give them the skills and the tool set they need to be able to um, address Congress if necessary, also speak to the media. But also, um, we wanted to give them, uh, offer them the opportunity to participate in a program that would create an interesting network for them. So we have 19 members so far. We've had two cohort workshops. Uh, so we have 19 um, women who've opted into the conversation around public policy and are looking to take their expertise and shape it into um, uh, public opinion pieces, obviously, or uh, even draft policy legislation or spaces like that so they can be seen as experts, as the experts they are in their field. So we're super excited about that. We'll have another cohort probably uh, later this year, but right now we're just we're just really getting their names out there and getting them out there and, and helping to create opportunities for them. So it's a great program. That's great. And I, I think one of the uh, parts about the, the Mosaic project that I really appreciate is the network that it's building um, across all of the cohorts, uh, especially as an opportunity for, um, for the cohort members to amplify each other's work. I was wondering if there are any uh, plans in terms of how uh, you hope to encourage that network going forward, and especially as, as the Mosaic project uh, gets into its second year. Absolutely. So we are uh, developing a and working on 
programmatic offerings throughout this year. So there are opportunities for them to get together uh, once a month to talk about specific issues, whether it's, it's uh, we, we have something coming up to where one of the cohort members is gonna run a session on, on optimizing their LinkedIn profile, right? It sounds like a, a thing, a super simple thing, but when you're talking about uh, branding and, and presenting yourself as an expert in a space, you wanna be consistent across all of your networks, all of your social media platforms, and you want to be clear about your voice in, you know, in 30 seconds or less in terms of articulating who you are and why you're even in the space. So we've been working to find out where their needs are and um, pulling folks in from our PPI team and folks from elsewhere to, to make sure that they have the tools they need to do that. Um, so we're making sure they know who each other, who they are, um, and they've been organically working with each other, right? Or finding ways to, to participate. Like Veronica, you had uh, um, uh, Rhonda, um, Dr. Rhonda Vanche Sharp on your um, webinar. We wanna see more opportunities for, for that to happen. That's great. I'm so excited to see all that the uh, cohorts accomplish. Uh, before we get into today's interview, we wanted to discuss a few upcoming events at PPI and dig into the news that's driving the week. This week, PPI and the Mosaic Economic Project hosted Janitor Kirsten Gillibrand of New York for an event on how we can better help get women back into the workforce. We were joined by a great panel, including a Mosaic cohort member, uh, which you just mentioned, Crystal, uh, Dr. Rhonda Sharp, uh, who are experts on the childcare crisis and economic policy. We also hosted an event uh, from the Reinventing America School Project with Representative Chris Pappas of New Hampshire and Jennifer Kemp, the Director of Youth Services at the US Department of Labor's Office of Workforce Development. That event focused on how we can create more school to work pathways for students and young adults who have been hit especially hard during this pandemic. Both of these events can be found on our website, progressivepolicy.org. And of course, we wanna take a minute uh, to talk a little bit about what's driving the news right now. I know, Veronica, you're going to be particularly interested in what's coming up from the Biden administration, but this week we're celebrating uh, President Joe Biden's 100 days in office, an important marker for any president, obviously, but these are not any time and these are different times and these are extraordinary times, but this is an especially important moment um, considering the state of the pandemic and the vaccine rollout, which has sort of dominated his first few months in office. And I must say, I think he's done an outstanding job. I'm just that's just Crystal's personal opinion about that. Um, and with the passage of the American Rescue Plan, um, we were able to see an increase in vaccines, preparation to reopen schools, and uh, help and help going out to those who most need it during these um, during these times of unemployment. The president will be speaking tonight in his first joint address to Congress, and he's expected to outline the key policy proposals in the American Families Plan. And as you mentioned, Crystal, I'm, I'm so excited to see policies that are. Um, just really focused on helping working families and, and mothers and, and women get back into the workforce, as we mentioned. And, and this is really the human infrastructure piece of the legislation. Crystal, I know I'm going to have an eye out for policies that, uh, like I said, will be helping uh, working families and women recover from the economic toll of this pandemic. But what are you looking for in this plan? Oh, wow. I am looking for so much. Uh, he's made such a huge down payment um, in such a short amount of time that, you know, now my expectations are super high. Um, I would love to see uh, an extension of some of the of the child tax credits that were implemented during the American Rescue Plan. I think, you know, halving 
child poverty uh, is, is, is a huge down payment and we should continue to build on that. I'm looking forward to seeing what he has planned for that. I'm definitely looking forward to and personally excited, obviously, um, about the focus and in, in significant laser focus on HBCUs, historically black colleges. I, I'm hearing some rumblings that there are going to be some more investments in that space. Uh, as a historically black college graduate, I graduated from Florida A&M, uh, the Rattlers down in Tallahassee, Florida, and I went to school across the street from Howard University. So it, 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 to see an administration take, take a strong focus in historically black colleges and in recognizing the significant contributions of uh, historically black colleges, and I'm not sure if you know this, but the HBCUs are only 3% of the four-year uh, four-year college uh, graduate or university programs, but they represent 80% of Black judges and half of Black lawyers and doctors. And 25% of uh, the STEM, STEM degrees come from HBCUs. So I think it's, an, it's, a, it's a great investment and it's a smart investment. So I'm certainly looking forward to that as well. That's great. I think uh, the, the pieces that I'm most excited to hear President Biden uh, talk about are uh, you know issues like childcare and and paid family leave and universal pre-K that we know pay off over time as as investments in in young people and families um, that are going to increase labor force participation um, and and help with child development and and more research um, for for young kids. So that's um, what I'm most looking forward to, and and I plan to uh, listen to to President Biden talk about. Oh, and let's not forget nutrition. Right? Yes, that's true. <laughs> we did a wonderful paper uh, together um, on, on nutrition and nutrition access and child nutrition. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, some expansion on uh, some of the nutrition uh, legislation that, that's passed and, and, and looking forward to seeing how he's going to continue to move that ball down the field as well. So very excited. That's right. Um, we're, we're expecting that there's going to be uh, an expansion turning the, the pandemic EBT program, which was providing free meals to kids um, over the summer months where they're uh, traditionally more food insecure just because schools are closed. Uh, and that's just such a great expansion that's, that's really going to um, make a huge difference for these kids in terms of food access and, and the way that families can plan for um, meals. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's going to be some really interesting, really interesting pieces of, of this legislation. I think he's going to he's going to touch on many, many populations that have kind of been um, left out of the conversation over the last at least the last four years for sure. Um, uh, and I understand, actually, I heard that he that there may be um, a plan to reinstate SNAP benefits for um, individuals who've been incarcerated but recently released who are being reintroduced or back into the community that um, he might be doing something in that space too in order to allow them to access uh, SNAP uh, food, well, what we used to call food stamp programs. So I think they're just going to be some very interesting pieces to this legislation. So I will be keeping my eye out. With that, let's listen to our recent interview with Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania, um, who is also the whip for the New Democrat Coalition. Hi, my name is Crystal Swan. I am your co-host today. I am team lead for the Mosaic Economic Project as well as a senior policy fellow with the Progressive Policy Institute. 
Mosaic is a program at the Progressive Policy Institute that's de designed to uplift the voices of women experts in the fields of economic, entrepreneurship, and technology, fields where too often the policy conversation has been dominated by the same voices, often male voices, often white voices. Mosaic was started to solve the problem that we've heard over and over that we can't find women experts in economics and technology. We go and we reach out to women who have an expertise in this space and who have an interest in engaging in the public policy space. And we offer them the skills and tools necessary to convey their expertise <clears throat> to a wide range of audiences, including Congress and the media. And joining me today in my co-host chair is Mosaic cohort graduate, Hillary Abel. Hillary Abel is the co-founder of Project Equity and has been an employee ownership practitioner, thought leader, and advocate for two decades. She recently participated in one of the Mosaic Economic Project's inaugural cohorts. So Hillary, thank you for sharing the hosting duties with me today. It's great to be here. Our special guest is Representative Chrissy Houlihan from the 6th District of Pennsylvania. Uh, Representative Houlihan serves as a whip with the new Democratic Coalition in the House. Uh, she also serves on the House Armed Services Committee, House Foreign Affairs Committee, House Small Business Committee, and among others, but she is also founder of the Service Women and Women Veterans Congressional Caucus. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Some issues we wanted to touch on today are issues that we are um, at Mosaic and PPI particularly focused in uh, around women and their engagement in the economy, the economic recovery, uh, workforce, and a small business arena. So we want to sort of dive in on Women in the workforce, um, lots of attention focused on that as we look towards uh, a healthy recovery. And one of the things we are, as many are concerned about is that some estimates say that about 2.3 million women have lost their jobs during the pandemic. And many of those jobs, we don't think we're gonna come back and that's what we're hearing. So as the nation moves towards economic recovery, we wanted to hear from you about some of your priorities around ensuring an equitable economic recovery and what do you feel are some of the policy solutions that we need to have in place to address the issue? Uh, and again, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I really appreciate the, the spirit with which this uh, group and conversation uh, comes from, uh, because I think you're right. There are a lot of women out there who have the uh, interest and capability of talking about this particular set of issues. Uh, I hope that I'm one of them. Uh, in addition to, of course, serving in Congress, my background, I think, is one that's pretty well aligned with you guys. Uh, I am an engineer by education, and, and my graduate work is in technology and policy, so, so the intersection of technology and, and public policy. Uh, I am a mom. Uh, I am an entrepreneur. Uh, and so I've spent, and I am, as you mentioned, a veteran. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time thinking uh, and experiencing what it means to be all of those kinds of things. And now I have the privilege to be in Congress uh, and thinking about those things and hopefully uh, affecting change and progress in those areas. And I think that you're right. I mean, we always have known that it's been particularly hard for women to be uh, equal participants in our workforce, uh, in particular in entrepreneurism and uh, in, in technology areas and those sorts of things. Uh, and then the pandemic happened. 
Uh, and then we became acutely aware, if we weren't already personally aware, I hope collectively we became more aware of the disparity uh, of how women experience the workforce and how women experience opportunities in our economy versus their male counterparts. And I think you're right, we've seen an enormous um, uptick in unemployment uh, amongst women. Uh, some people call it, of course, a she session. Uh, it's estimated that it will take uh, until 2024, which will be about two years uh, later than the recovery for men, for women to fully recover through uh, what has what we have experienced um, in during this pandemic. Uh, we know that the workforce participation amongst female uh, workers has already dropped to 57%, which is unfortunately, I believe, the lowest rate since 1988 or 89 uh, in terms of percentage of uh, women in the workforce. So we have an issue. Uh, we've always known we had one. Uh, but now we have a particularly difficult and, and uh, pressing one. And so we need to be talking about what kinds of solutions that we can collectively uh, produce. And many of them, although you know, ostensibly aimed at, at this issue of women in the workplace are really aimed at people, families you know, in the work, at workplace because um, anytime that a woman is out and productive in the workplace, her family is, her community is better off, her commonwealth in my case is better off, her country is better off. So um, some of the ways that we can, can look at this are related to, uh, of course, uh, family leave, sick leave, um, parental leave, uh, all of those kinds of uh, things that I think that we all recognize as being um, modernizations that ought to have happened long ago because they exist worldwide in places like ours. Uh, we are the, the, the uh, developed nation, for lack of a better way of describing it, that's so far behind on this, it's, it's pretty tragic. Uh, we also need to be talking about childcare. Um, one of the bigger reasons why I separated from the military uh, was access to affordable childcare myself. Um, and that still uh, is an issue, not just for people who serve in uniform, but just generally everybody in the economy. So those are some of the beginning ways that we can be looking at the issue of getting women more involved in the workforce. Absolutely, completely agree. I mean, we are um, focused very much on trying to find those those solutions for 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 women across the board. And I think that's a those are some great great directions we should be looking at. Um, obviously, I would say if there's anything that Mosaic can do to support you and the work you're doing, or if there are experts that we can we can leverage for you, please feel free. I have to put a plug in for it. But oh, um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a as a um, one quick question, as an engineer, so how was that space engaging for you? Like, how did that? How did you experience that work? I, I'm a little off topic, but I'm. I'm sure. really curious, like, how did you, because one of the things we're hearing for, from women economists was just how breaking into some of those spaces and getting the sort of um, um, validation and the, the credibility in that space was, was, is still a challenge in some areas. So I'm curious about that. It is. And a lot of our economy, the job opportunities in our economy come in what would be considered to be STEM and STEAM, you know, spaces. Um, and so uh, if you are any, any human, it would be a good idea to have those kinds of skill sets, uh, regardless of, of your gender uh, or otherwise. And so you're right, it is um, a tragedy that we are, women are 51% of the economy and in the kind of 
20s or so in terms of people who are engaged in the STEM or STEAM field uh, professionally, and in the teens uh, for those of us who are actually engineers as, a, as a, opposed to uh, mathematics or science you know, uh, professionals. And so we, um, we're not being adequately um, prepared for the opportunities that are available to us, and we're not being seen as as assets, uh, which we are. And so uh, those are some of the things that um, bothered me as a young girl growing up and being one of the few you know, girls in my uh, high school chemistry or physics class. And then as a, a young uh, undergrad, uh, being one of 10 out of 100 women in my undergraduate major um, and having only ever had one woman professor um, in any of my classes. Um, and so those are things that strike you, you know, on a personal level. And then the question is, what can you do now that you're here, you know, on a, on a professional level in Congress? And so some of the things that we can do, uh, we've put forward some legislation um, that, that um, talks about the fact that a lot of particularly women, and especially now during the, the pandemic, have to leave the economy for one reason or another. And they need to be able to come back. Um, and they need to be able to come back. Uh, as a returnship as opposed to an internship. Um, a lot of this happens in the sciences and the engineering fields um, where people can't finish as an example or even start their graduate work uh, because they are most likely doing that, women are most likely doing that during their childbearing years or when things are more complicated. And so we're trying to figure out through legislation like this, how do we incentivize smaller companies to be able to have these returnships um, I've had conversations, not legislative related or, uh, specifically, but with institutions, you know, um, academic institutions about how to codify these ideas of, uh, of being um, accommodating and amenable to different um, uh, lifestyles, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, for their undergraduate and graduate school populations, because we have to do that. You know, I was fortunate um, when I was in graduate school, I had a, a one-year-old and I was pregnant. Um, my um, advisor, my thesis advisor was incredibly accommodating with my research assistantship and provided the opportunity for me to work from home a couple few days a week and, you know, to do some classes uh, before I came full time. And those just happen to be one offs. Uh, those are the kinds of things, though, that need to be, as I mentioned, sort of solidified and codified and, and accepted um, so that we can be more um, more welcoming of the diversity of all of uh, the uh, contributions that all of us can offer. So there's some things that can be done certainly at a local state and federal level to be more helpful, but there's other things that can be just done uh, at an academic or institutional level or just person to person to recognize that these are things that we need to do to be able to uh, level the playing field for women in STEM. Absolutely. And, and entrepreneurship can sometimes provide the flexibility that you're speaking about as well. And it can also be all consuming, as you know. Um, women entrepreneurs and business owners of color have been disproportionately struggling during the pandemic, as you know. How, how are you hoping to help these underserved entrepreneurs stabilize and grow their businesses or even start new ones as the economy recovers? Sure, um, we focus a lot on uh, women in communities of color and veterans uh, in entrepreneurism. Um, because those are things that matter to me personally, because I'm fortunate enough to serve on the Small Business Committee. Um, I'm also fortunate enough to be on the Armed Services Committee. And there's a lot of um, entrepreneurism that goes on down supply chain uh, and, the small, and small businesses that are uh, 
or uh, affiliated with the defense industrial complex as well. So, you know, what's good for the supply chains of the DOD is also good for the supply chains of people who are not necessarily involved in DOD. And so an example would be, and this isn't necessarily, you know, women or communities of color or veteran specific, but we should be incentivizing people to be part of companies that they want to be part of. Uh, and companies that they want to be part of, maybe as an example, ESOPs or, you know, employee owned organizations of one form or another. We know those kinds of organizations to be more successful, um, uh, more welcoming, a variety of other reasons, you know, more sustainable in a lot of different ways. And so what if we could inspire or incentivize uh, ESOPs to be more involved in the supply chain of the DOD? That would be a great idea. And that is, in fact, something that we're working on. What if we could figure out a way through um, SBIR or STTR um, grants or seed money to be able to uh, allow people to access the money more rapidly, uh, to be able to have uh, U.S. Patent Office um, access more rapidly, to be able to understand how to operationalize their ideas more rapidly? What if we could do that? not just in the DOD space, but just in general. And that's you know, a piece of uh, legislation called the RAMP Act, uh, which is for innovation in the STEM fields and in the uh, research and development fields that we're also pushing forward as, a, as an office. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that we need to do. And they aren't necessarily sort of like with the big women and communities of color and veterans you know, screaming you know, about them. They're about entrepreneurism in its purest form. And they hopefully also will be able to benefit um, entrepreneurs uh, such as myself and, and others. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah, we, we actually found um, through real research that employee-owned companies were three to four times less likely to lay people off during the pandemic. So it's exciting to hear about some of the ways you're thinking about helping to promote socially responsible businesses like, like employee-owned companies and certified B corporations and others that are have building back better really in the core of their, their business DNA, if you will. 100%. Great. Um, as, a, as an entrepreneur myself at this point in my life, which was a strange <laughs> transition after 25, 26 years working in, um, working in local government for local, my, I've spent 20 plus years working for the US Conference of Mayors, so engaging with local officials for all of that time. So it's, it's been interesting to be on this side of it. Uh, one of the one of the interesting conversations we have among ourselves um, in terms of entrepreneurship is is the is healthcare um, and the tremendous cost of healthcare uh, if you're outside of an employee structure and an employer structure. Um, I'm curious. Um, I know the 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 new uh, Democrat coalition put forward some some thoughts and some priorities around how to improve the ACA. I'm wondering what your what your thoughts are around how to how to do that as it relates to small businesses and, and, and individuals. So I'm curious about your thoughts. So uh, I hope that a lot of that conversation in the next several months will become a, a little bit more clear uh, because there's a lot of different very good ideas on how to make uh, healthcare more accessible, more affordable, uh, and more portable uh, for people. Uh, that seems to be one of the big, those, those three things are issues number one, two, and three in my community and many other communities. Uh, people, whether they are individuals who have healthcare, individuals who don't have healthcare, entrepreneurs who are starting businesses or, or larger businesses who employ people, you know, whatever one of those things you fit into, you have issues with, with healthcare. So we all need to be thinking about how to make our, our collective systems more efficient. 
and, and, and more fair. Um, some of the things that I think that you're talking to are things like offering a um, uh, kind of a, a, a system uh, uh, not a, that rides alongside the for-profit system, sort of a, um, uh, I'm not, I'm losing the word right now, which is the a private, a public, a public option. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> a public option that uh, allows us to be able to compete with the private options, you know, if, if that's the appropriate thing, to be able to have that option be portable uh, or other options be portable. I think that's something that the new Dems talk a great deal about is the fact that we, at this point, are uh, increasingly more and more a gig economy, good or bad, you know, with that. Uh, we want to make sure that people have the ability to, to have their benefits move with them. And those are some of the things that we can work on. We need to figure out how to get prescription drug prices lower uh, for people. Um, and all of those kinds of things, I think, are starting to form um, more clearly in this new administration, kind of where the intersection is of all of those different pushes and pulls. Should we lower the age you know, for people to be able to access things like Medicare and Medicaid? Should we have a public option? Should we, how can we influence the pricing on prescription drugs effectively without stifling innovation? You know, those are all really, really, really complicated and important conversations that we should be having right now. And as I mentioned, I really do hope that uh, with the president's next several, you know, large pieces of legislation and proposals, we'll be able to come to a, coal a coalition of, of people hopefully, in my opinion, bipartisan coalition of people that can come up with solutions for these issues. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I've been around long enough to, you know, was around at the sort of the ACA development phase. And when public option was taken out, I was certainly, certainly a little hurt by that one. I was hoping, uh, hoping that would. I think uh, we would be in a different place had that not happened. I mean, had, yeah. had it been, had it left, been left there. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have to agree with you on that. Because um, I, I believe in competition, and I believe you know every there should be that that balance. I was around during drug uh, importation discussions from Canada when we were trying to deal with drug pricing uh, and high drug uh, prescription drug costs in that space. So I'm glad we're we're coming back to it, and hopefully we'll we'll have some solutions. Um, veterans, I know that is an issue that is incredibly important to you. So I want to definitely give you an opportunity to sort of talk about your priorities around um, the, the veteran population and what you're hoping to, to move forward in Congress under your, under your time. Sure, uh, there have only ever been, I think seven uh, women who've worn the uniform in Congress uh, in, the, in the House of uh, Representatives. That's not a lot. Um, I think there's been 11,000 people total um, who've served since the beginning of our history. So, or roughly speaking. So, you know, that's a pretty, pretty tragic non-number right there. And that being said, uh, for the first time ever, we were able to put together a coalition of women who had served in uniform, four of us. And we started this service women and women veterans caucus. You know, caucuses are just groups of people who get together to work on issues and elevate issues. Uh, we were fortunate to be able to get another 50 or so members of Congress who were both women and men, both Democrats and Republicans to join that caucus and to begin the process uh, of really bringing together the fact that um, women who serve, um, they're not just uh, active duty or veterans. It's the, it's the whole trajectory of a woman uh, through her recruitment into her active duty service, into her uh, potentially reserve duty uh, and, and into being a veteran. We need to treat the whole uh, trajectory and not just individual siloed areas of it. 
Um, we also need to recognize that women are only about 20 or so percent of the of the military, uh, but they are growing pretty significantly. And in the next decade or so, we expect it to be around 30 percent. And gosh, in my mind, we ought to be 51 percent um, because this is an all volunteer you know, service. And I think that we um, should be uh, the proportion of women should be proportionate to the population if that's what people would like to do, if, if that's how they'd like to serve. So we need to figure out how to allow that to happen. And so the Women and uh, Veterans, uh, Service Women, Women Veterans Caucus is focusing on that. Uh, some of the early work that we've been able to do is talking about the fact that women don't tend to feel as though they're terribly welcomed in the VA. It doesn't seem like it's their sort of a place. We've discovered that there was a, a planning kind of a pilot program that was going on where women were being given four hours of transitional training um, education as they left the military, as they separated and as they became veterans to tell them about the VA and to tell them what was available to them. Uh, and they became much, much more likely to use the services available to them, including mental health services. Women veterans are twice as likely to commit suicide or to die by suicide as their male, as I'm sorry, as their civilian woman counterparts are. So we have this kind of um, need of women to be able to feel as though they're welcome in the VA and we need to be able to address that. And so this legislation that recently uh, went through because of the Service Women and Women Veterans Caucus allows that to happen, allows that training program to be expanded and extended to all of the branches of the service. And hopefully that that will mean that more women avail themselves of that, um, of the VAs. Uh, so those are some of, we've also recognized this is a really kind of not niche if it's you, but 40% uh, of us have death, dense breast tissue. Um, I'm one of them. Um, and that means that one of the uh, only ways that we can detect uh, cancerous tissue is through 3D mammogram technology. And in the military, and uh, I'm sorry, after you've left the military and you have a certain form of healthcare called TRICARE, uh, the, that kind of technology was not available. 3D mammogram technology was not provided for under TRICARE. So 40% of women who have this breast tissue were not able to avail themselves of this technology because of the kind of healthcare they had. Uh, going back, Crystal, to your conversation about for-profit um, insurance companies, almost all insurance companies that are for-profit, 90% of them allowed people to have that kind of technology to scan their breasts. So this was, the, the TRICARE system was the exception. So we were able, again, through recognizing a problem because of things like the Service Women and Women's Veterans Caucus to address the problem and get that, that fixed. Um, and so hopefully somebody like my mom is an example who is a TRICARE, uh, uh, who has healthcare through TRICARE because my dad was an active duty member, will now be able to have 3D mammograms if, if that's what she needs. Great, outstanding, outstanding. We are, we're getting close and um, I think we have maybe five more minutes of your okay. time. Um, this one isn't on the, on the, on the list, but I, I would be remiss if we didn't sort of address the issue of the day. Um, I was taking a look at the uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, you have supported that, and I would love to hear your thoughts around why you feel that's an important piece of legislation. Uh, there's just so much work to be done uh, in the issue of um, racial equity and, and racial justice and social equity and social justice. Uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, this is the second time it's passed and the second time that I've voted for it. Uh, and I am really hopeful uh, that the Senate will 
do their job <laughs> and take and take uh, up this piece of legislation uh, and hopefully deliver it back to us or at least some aspects of it back to us so that we can move forward on making uh, progress on this issue. Um, I, I don't even have words to articulate how important it is to make sure that every person in this nation feels as though that they are safe. Um, and it is very, very clear that we live in a world where it's unacceptable uh, for a significant portion of our population not to feel safe uh, and to feel as though the very people who are there ostensibly to provide uh, security are not there in that way, in that capacity in, in, in many cases, in some cases. So uh, I think that it's important to call it, call it out. Police brutality is real. Um, uh, people die, are dying because of this. Uh, and we as a nation need to address that. And one way that we can do that is through legislation. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, as I mentioned, that the Senate will do their job on this and many, many, many other things <laughs> that we have delivered to them. Right. So, Right. No, thank you so much, um, personally and professionally, for, for your in that space. This is, a, this, is a, this, is, this is the moment of, of our time, I think, on some of these issues, um, on this one in particular. So. I'm out of questions. So Hillary, I don't know if you have one follow-up question before we want to be respectful of time, but. Just a very general one. Is there anything that you haven't spoken to that you're really looking forward to in this next administration or the current administration, I should say? I am really hopeful um, that something as horrible as a pandemic, um, I hope is the opportunity that we have as a um, as a nation and as a planet to recognize how interconnected that we all are, and um, I hope that it's been the proverbial you know scales falling off of our eyes to see all of the things that we kind of always knew. You know, we always knew that my health matters to your health, and you know that. Uh, that I, my education and my ability to, you know, be a productive citizen matters to you or whether or not I can have access to a good job and a good education and a good health and a good safe planet. You know, all of those things are so interconnected. I hope that this pandemic has demonstrated that to us. And even on not just a national scale, but on a global scale, that until this disease is gone everywhere, um, we are not safe anywhere. And I feel the same way about issues as Crystal and we were just talking about of justice as well. Until we have a just world, we, we will never uh, be okay as a nation. And so part of the reason why I serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee is because I believe we have a, a responsibility to be global citizens in addition to being citizens of our community and, and, our, and our states and of our country. And so I am hopeful that this new administration sees that. Um, and I am hopeful that this administration was brought here by people, regardless of their political affiliation, who also see that um, and who are going to be working on all of those different aspects of things together uh, so that we have a more just planet and a safer planet. Uh, and, I, and I'm hopeful um, that I can be part of that. Well, thank, thank you so, so much for, yeah. for all you're doing. Thank you. You're so welcome. <laughs> thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. And I really genuinely having seen conversations, you know, where sometimes we might agree and sometimes we might not agree. That's, that's also something I'm hopeful about. 
you know, civility and decency is really, really important. And finding the humanity in each one of us is really important. And things like this with what you're doing is part of that solution instead of yelling and screaming. Totally agree. Thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> See y'all later. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.